Hello, you're listening to Life After Jet, about stories and careers of the Jet alumni community. We're heading into the world of arts this time, TV and film, although my guest on this episode also maintains a career in politics, so we'll be having some actual grown-up conversations and give this podcast a sense of much-needed gravitas. Enjoy and catch you at the other end. Okay, so hello, my name is Gavin Hugh. Uh, I was a jet in Takamatsu in Kagawa Prefecture from 2011 to 2014, and I loved it. It was a fantastic experience. What I do now is I kind of lead a double life. Half my life, I work in the Scottish Parliament um, as a senior caseworker and press officer to an MSP, a member of the Scottish Parliament, Shona Robinson, who is the former health secretary. And uh, the rest of the time, I run my own video production business called Midgebank Media, um, which I launched in 2017. And um, yeah, I kind of try and juggle both of those wives. And it's it's a lot of fun. Cool. Uh, so why did you decide to go on the JET program? I have to take this back to when I was a kid. Because when I was a kid, it's the typical story, um, I had a massive love of anime and video games yep and if, if i'm being honest i think i can trace it all back to one moment which was in my uh grandma's house um and she put on an episode of adventures of sonic the hedgehog <laughs> and this and, and i remember she just in typical grand way she was like do you want to watch the hedgehog and i went yeah sure i didn't know what she was talking about <laughs> and so she stuck on the show there's this wee blue thing running about zooming all over the place um, started a lifelong love affair with Sega games. Um, from there, um, I wanted to learn more about Sega and learned obviously it came from Japan. Video game culture became a huge part of my life. Um, and then obviously on the back of that, anime as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started to kind of just have this whole kind of um, love of Asia and, and Asia in general because um, I fell in love with um, Bruce Lee um, action films. Um, I used to go to, um, you know, the video rental store and get what's the kind of um, martial arts films and that kind of stuff. Um, I started doing Taekwondo, obviously Korean martial art. Um, and basically anything to do with Asia was kind of just my bag. Um, I was just fascinated by the place. It was so different to life in Scotland. Um, and so when um, an opportunity presented itself when I was, when I just graduated university to go on jet, I'd often kind of thought about, Japan and how much I wanted to go there. I'd thought about living there before. I had this naive dream when I was a teenager of moving over there and working in the video game industry. Um, and then, obviously, a, a wider appreciation in just the video game culture. I'd also done a, an art portfolio on it when I was in high school about Japanese art design and so on. Um, and so when I when this opportunity presented itself, you know, I couldn't resist. I just went, I have to do this, you know, mm-hmm. um, particularly because. At that time, my wife, um, I just graduated university. I wasn't in a career job at that point. And I thought, when else will I have this opportunity, this amazing, fantastic opportunity to go and experience life, not just as a tourist, but actually become um, like an integrated member of a community mm-hmm. and actually have a, a role there. You actually have some responsibility. Um, and I thought, I have to do this. And so I went to Japan. And as I say, um, one of the best decisions ever made so you said you were placed in Takamatsu, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, yeah. Takamatsu is a, well, it's kind of a coastal city. Um, basically, it sits on the Settlinwind Sea. Um, mm-hmm. It crosses over to Okayama, which is obviously, um, you know, just obviously on the other side of the water. And mm-hmm. um, between there, there's a, a network of islands in the Settlinwind Sea. 
um, where there is um, an art festival every three years with modern art installations. Um, it's remarkably beautiful. Um, and the, the thing about Takamatsu that always struck me was because it was by the coast, it felt very much like home because where I live in Scotland, um, I live in Fife, I live by the coast here in Kirkcaldy, um, and we look over the water to the big city of Edinburgh, um, which is directly opposite uh, the capital city. And there's a network of islands in between as well. So it's very similar um, living by the Settle on Sea to living by the Firth of Forth. I found it very much a homely experience. It can be quite dry, it's quite arid, but the um, the the people there are just so welcoming. I found um, it it's probably quite different than living in Tokyo because if you're living in a big city, then I think it's quite easy to kind of fall kind of like through the cracks and kind of mm. disappear in the crowd. But because Takamatsu um, has a lot of suburban areas, quite a few areas that are quite rural, um, I think that allows you to kind of build up more of a kind of a presence in the community and get a bit more integrated. Um, and I do think that's uh, quite a unique experience and very, very happy that that's where I was based. Yeah. Uh, I had this conversation with uh, another friend about uh, placements in more mm. rural areas or small areas. Uh, Inaka people, well, I don't know if you would call this Inaka, but it's semi-Inaka. Yeah, it's semi-Inaka. Yeah. Inaka enough that, that yeah. the foreigner still still kind of draws fascinated looks and mm-hmm. and um, the kind of attention which is equal parts uh, endearing and equal parts stalkery and unnerving. It can be. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one of the, the things, one of the memories that struck me most, um, obviously I got a lot of the usual kind of hanatakai, which you get sometimes from the from the shogaku kids, because they look at you and you're like, why is your nose so big? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It just happens to be that way. I did get some strange experiences. Sometimes I'd be walking around the supermarkets and I'd spot grannies would be sort of peering around the shelves thinking what's this guy doing here and that was a bit <laughs> odd um and and you sort of you were aware that you'd stand out obviously because you know you're maybe the only, only white guy for mm. i don't know miles else so that happened but then yeah. obviously um there, there was some sometimes it kind of got a little bit weird weirder than that because um i remember um going to the combini one day and I suddenly became aware that there was three bikes, three um, kids on bikes were following me. And every time I sort of stopped and sort of tried to look around, they darted behind the bushes or darted down the side street or whatever. I was like, this is really weird. And so I went to the combini, I got whatever I was getting. I came back out and the bikes were there. And they're like, hey, Gavin Sensei. And I was like, hiya. And then they followed me all the way back to my place. And I was like, right, okay, this is this is getting weird now. So anyway, <laughs> uh, about about twenty minutes go by, thirty minutes go by. I must have been sitting on my computer, just you know, minding my own business. And then I don't know what made me think, but all of a sudden I just looked out my window, and the three of them were there, and they were staring through <laughs> the window into my flat. And I was just looking back at them, and I was like. No, this is not happening. <laughs> so I just <laughs> closed the curtains, and I thought that's such an intrusion of privacy. Um, but just oh, God. that was some crazy stuff, you know. Like, so you were a bit of a celebrity, I suppose, in some regards, because you were the only foreigner around. But that was a strange experience. That was really, really strange. You do have this opportunity, I suppose, to talk about and kind of like showcase where you're from, and and kind of you know people are interested. So it's it it can be a bit like being a, a human zoo. Um, being a bit of a, an exhibit on display but I suppose I, I do think that to some extent it 
stems from a good place because people are just genuinely curious and i think they do there is actually a genuine desire that people want they want to learn more and they want to know about yeah. our cultures and our places so i think that on some level it can come from a good place but i i would say that um occasionally it can it can veer into the too far area where it's like okay maybe let's respect some boundaries here you know <laughs> one of the things i love about takamatsu um is the 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 udon restaurants that are everywhere kagawa yeah. is udon ken um and they have huge pride in their udon noodles and their udon noodle industry um I ate udon noodles, it must have been about maybe two or three times a week, every week. If you went for lunch with your colleagues, it was always, let's go for udon. It was never, let's go for sushi or let's go for, you know, uh, some, something else. It was always yeah. just, let's go for udon. And to be fair, um, I really enjoyed the udon. It was it was good stuff. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I had ramen. But the thing <laughs> is, ramen came from Tokushima, which is our neighbouring prefecture. Yeah. So there was this huge rivalry almost like kind of like um you know so i was like kagawa versus tokushima it was kind of like this idea of like you know if you have udon you're a kagawa man if you have ramen you're a Tokushima man and there was this kind of like tribal loyalty between the noodle groups um and that was something that really struck me as being quite unique and also quite fun um yeah the time i went and got ramen i felt like oh i'm a traitor <laughs> um but yeah, udon was great. And the thing is, I've still got some udon. I've got some sanuki udon. Sanuki is the name for Kagawa. It gets called sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. I've got some sanuki udon in the kitchen, um, which I'm looking forward to having. Um, it was sent to me by um, friends of mine over in Japan as a Christmas present. So uh, oh, looking forward to that. The other thing as well, Takamatsu um, has got, which is really kind of um, famous for, is um, huge, vast quantities of bonsai trees that come from Kinashi. Um right. And I taught um, at Kinashi Shogaku, um, which was uh, right at the heart of where the bonsai fields were. And something that was really nice, the kids, um, all the, the Shogaku kids were given a bonsai tree um, to raise themselves as part of their kind of school projects. And I really liked that. We did school trips to the bonsai fields and saw all the, the farmers hard at work. And mm. whenever I cycled to work, I'd cycle past rows and rows and rows of fields of bonsai trees. Um, and it was actually just quite um, quite beautiful, particularly um, when the sun was rising in the morning. There was just these kind of silhouetted bonsais um, for miles on end. It was just quite quite stunning, actually. When I was in Japan with Nintakamatsu, I actually set up um, uh, a Kaiwa group for um, oh. my uh, local community because it was really important to me that I make friends that wasn't that weren't just within the jet bubble, you know, not just within the kind of gag Okujin community, but actually want mm-hmm. to actually talk to people in the local area. So the way in which I did that was I spoke to um, a woman who I had a really good um, friendship with at uh, one of my schools, um, and she helped me organize at the local community center fortnightly free English classes, which I just ran myself. Mm. Um, obviously, as a jet, we're not supposed to do any paid work, so I didn't do any paid work. Um, but I just did free classes at the local community center, um, and I invited members of the community who otherwise would never have had access to English education. So that included um, a lot of stay-at-home mums bringing along their toddlers, mm. um, those <laughs> of retired people, a lot of pensioners, um, a lot of kids from the school sometimes came because they just wanted a little bit of extra practice and they weren't going to Juku. So. Mm. Um, from that, I got invited to wards of dinners, wards of um, Hanami parties, wards of um, wards of connections and friendships were made, um, you know, and that I think was probably one of the most rewarding things was actually getting integrated in the local community. Mm-hmm. 
I'm still in touch with all these people. You know, we still send each other Christmas cards and presents. And every year um, I hear from them. You still get the occasional email or Facebook message. Um, I just got sent actually by um, one family, a giant Pikachu, because they know how much I love Pokemon. They sent me a giant Pikachu stuffed toy, which was from the Pokemon Center. I was delighted. I've got Udon to me. I've got, um, you know, sweets and Okashi. I've got um, all of these wonderful things. And that, I think, being integrated with that community, I went back to Japan in 2017 and I uh, visited and caught up with a lot of my old friends from the older Kaiba group. It's still going. Um, as far as I know, it's still going now, which is oh, why wow. not now? It's coronavirus. But as far as I know, it's still going. That ran from the end of 2011 till, till now. So um, I've left a little bit of myself behind I've, I've got I've left behind a little bit of a legacy and I'm really proud of that um yeah. and I also um picked up the shakuhachi instrument as well um I started playing the nice. shakuhachi as a as a flute the yeah. Japanese bamboo flute um my shakuhachi sensei I did a a, a a talk um at the local English um center kind of international center in town mm. and then the person who invited me to do the talk Anabuki sensei did he played the shakuhachi a guy in his yes. 80s and an absolutely fascinating man with so many stories, travelled the world. And I think he was the first English teacher in Takamatsu. And so um, he said, do you want to wear the shakuhachi? I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And so every Saturday I went round to his place. Not every Saturday, but most Saturdays. I went round to his place on Saturday morning and we'd play the shakuhachi for two hours. Me, you sometimes just me, sometimes a few other people as well. Mm-hmm. And sit and we'd play the shakuhachi, usually with a cup of sake. Um, that led to performances in um, Japanese tea houses, um, doing concerts um, in Takamatsu as well. Um, I still have my shakuhachi. I don't play it anywhere near as much as I should. But um, again, it's just a skill that I would never have, have ever have come into contact with in Scotland. And another thing I'm immensely grateful for, another set of experiences that Jet offered to me, which I, you know, I'm just so happy that I had that opportunity the jet program really did um it really was uh, an amazing life altering experience and I know I grew as a person being on it I know I I matured a lot I know I my values were kind of sharpened um my awareness of kind of cultural differences and the um but also the the kind of cultural connections what, what kind of makes us one people as opposed to you know seeing ourselves in different groups there's actually so much that kind of unites us kind of binds us together as, as a people um where language barriers they can all break down because you know you have that shared understanding and some things don't need words um it, it really is just it, i can't stress how much the experience meant to me and and to this day the the, the importance of those memories and friendships and and how i'm going to take them forward for the rest of my life how did you get into your career? Because mm. were you studying film before? If you weren't, how did you actually get into into filmmaking? So it's quite complex. Um, I had a lifelong love of film. Basically, uh, it kind of stemmed from a love of video games. And I mm-hmm. think that when I was a teenager, I saw The Fellowship of the Ring by Peter Jackson. Yeah. And at that point, I remember just having this desire, which was, I want to make films. So I just, I just want to make films. Mm-hmm. And my earliest efforts were picking up a camera and just mucking about with some friends, as as they often are. Um, when I went to uni, I studied um, English studies, but also film and media studies as a joint honours degree at Stirling. Mm-hmm. And that was something I was very passionate about. I became the station manager of the student TV station. I graduated. Uh, I was determined. I was like, I'm going to make film. I spent mm-hmm. about a year wandering the wilderness. Um, during that time, I applied for Jet um, because 
obviously, you know, trying to get into television film it's not an easy thing, particularly in Scotland where there aren't many opportunities. Mm. Um so the opportunities um in the UK are centralised around about the London area. Um there are opportunities in Scotland in Glasgow and some smaller opportunities in Edinburgh, but they're few and far between and they're extremely competitive because the numbers just aren't there for the roles. Mm. So I was kind of feeling a bit kind of frustrated. Went to Japan for three years. Um I loved it. And when I came back from Japan, um the very first job that I applied for was for STV. Um, which is Scottish television. It's a kind of a independent broadcaster over here. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for that. It was the very first job I applied for, and I got the interview. And I went to the interview. I did some research on the guy um, who was interviewing me because obviously, you know, I, I just found out his name and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. He had a work for Origami. When I when I spoke to him, obviously I brought up Japan, mm-hmm. and he said one of the things. It was him and uh, my, my other producer at the time. They both, it was Jerry and Paul, um, who were uh, my producers at STV, and they um, they said that one of the reasons my CV stood out, one of the reasons they wanted to speak to me, was because I'd had the experience in the JET program. Mm. And they said, you know, there's a thousand or so applicants for this position, and only three spaces. And I got one of the spaces. And I'm convinced, and I know, that it was my experience in JET and in Japan that got me into that industry, because... They were interested in my experience with Japan, the ability to kind of adapt to another culture and, and work abroad and all the rest of it. Um, and the fact that, as I say, my producer had an interest in origami himself. It was a hobby of his. So mm-hmm. uh, that, I think, you know, just kind of shows you the power of the JET program in terms of, of opening doors. Um, if it had not been for that experience, there's a good chance that I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have worked in television for a number of years. Yeah. And I wouldn't own um, production business now you you have to make your own kind of opportunities and I'll, I'll come on to that in a second when i talk about setting up midgebyte media um which is my, my business that i run um so obviously i moved back to scotland in 2014 um which was uh you know interesting time to come back to scotland <laughs> Let's leave that there. um but yeah the um uh, obviously i was i was heavily involved in, in the independence referendum at the time obviously mm. very heavily involved that's actually the motivation why i returned from japan i probably wouldn't have come back from japan at that point if it hadn't been for the independence referendum um and so obviously i got the job at stv i worked there for mm, just under a couple of years um and then i worked briefly for kind of doing uh, sky news camera work um as well um and then I was um, made uh, redundant, unfortunately, from my role um, at Sky. Well, it was actually a contractor to Sky, but unfortunately, they were cutting costs and um, I was kind of like, you know, surplus to requirements, which was a shame. Mm. So um, at that point, I was living in Edinburgh and I was kind of scrambling for, uh, you know, a job. Um, luckily, my um, one of the MSPs who I got to know um, during the independence referendum, David Torrance, um, who is the local MSP for Kirkcaldy, um, he got in touch and he basically said, I hear you need a job. Do you want a job? And I was like, OK. So, <laughs> so with no planning or working in politics whatsoever, I found myself having transitioned from television to working in the Scottish Parliament, which is obviously the, the heart of Scottish politics, where yeah. the Scottish government sits. Um, and working for the party of government, the, the SNP. Um, since then, I've worked for three members of the Scottish Parliament, as I say, including Shona Robertson, who is my current um, employer. Um, during that time, uh, I also founded Midgebyte Media, um, which is my own video production business. And that stemmed from a desire to basically kind of not lose touch with and reconnect with the, the video and filmmaking work that I love doing, mm-hmm. because I... I love that 
you know, I've always had that love of making films. And so Midgebyte Media um, is obviously kind of a corporate brand, um, but also does wedding films and also does um, some creative productions. We did a mental health film project last Christmas called Cold, which we did as a, um, you know, an exploration of um, coping with depression at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And um, also launched uh, last year a creative networking group for local filmmakers in the area with Fife called the Creative Film Fife Network, mm-hmm. um, which we just launched a podcast for. So, yeah, that's kind of a part of history of my career over the last um, five, six years or so since coming back. Well, yeah, six years since I came back from Japan. Um, it's been broadcasting, there's been politics, and there's been running my own business. So, it's been quite diverse, but it's all been all been very rewarding and very fun yes so in other words you've done nothing at all just you know just nah, didn't, nah, did nothing did, just chilled did out nothing. Just played some nope. playstation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just did nothing yeah <laughs> yeah so uh you mentioned that having set up your own business uh yeah called midgibyte media so Midgibyte, um, first of all, I don't know if you know what a Midgi is. It's a mosquito or is it one of those it's like a wee, It's a wee bug. I, I'm not sure if this word is well known outside Scotland, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but um, my understanding is it's, it's mostly used in Scotland. So a Midgi is a, a wee um, a wee beastie that flies about and it bites you. And you it know, gives you marshlands, <laughs> right? Like no, they're just, just, no? just everywhere. They're just everywhere. Um, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. If I pop outside, though, they'll be about... Um, Although they're mostly in the highlands, to be fair. So a midgey, um, it bites you and you get a wee red dot pops up. And I thought the wee red dot looks like a recording symbol on a camera. So um, that's why you've got midgey bite. <laughs> that's why. Nice. So, yeah, there's there's method in the madness. There's a bit of reason behind it. Um, nice. And I was also thinking it kind of sounded a little like BuzzFeed or something like that. You know, a little bit kind of like someone that, someone that the kids would like. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, when I set that up, I'd always kind of had this dream of of running my own video business. Even when I was working at um, STV, um, you know, I still wanted to obviously make more content and so on. Um, I have friends who've obviously worked in corporate video before, and it's incredibly tough to make it work because, um, particularly, particularly in Scotland, people's marketing budgets just aren't that big. Um, and there's obviously huge advertising companies and all the rest of it. So you're very much selling a product to people that have often never considered using it before. Mm-hmm. But... We do event coverage. We do weddings as well. We've got another brand called White Rose of Scotland Wedding Films, which is a sub-brand. And um, I don't just do the corporate stuff. Um, I also do some creative work as well. So um, I've obviously done this mental health film that I mentioned too. And I collaborate with other filmmakers too. Um, you know, So I'm working on a couple of projects. Uh, one of the ones I've been most passionate about is working with a friend of mine, uh, Robbie Davidson, Mm-hmm. who's a touring metal um, artist for bands like The Exploited and so on. Um, he plays overseas and gigs and all the rest of it. Wow. Although I think, I think he's retired from that now because he's, he's, he's a dad. But I, we speak all the time. And he's making this epic World War II zombie action horror comedy. Oh, my God. Dick Dynamite. Um, so <laughs> Love I've been it. Just Dick Dynamite. Shut up, take my money already. Oh, mate, honestly, you want to see this stuff. Because I've, I've obviously been on set and filming a lot of it. But um, when you actually see the footage back, it just... It, it, if I could describe it, it's basically um, Tarantino and Rodriguez meets Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wow. No. And, and also meets exploitation, Roger Corman, um, Grindhouse stuff. It's it's exactly what you think it is, and it's it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. But yeah, so Mitchell Media um, set up in 2017. Um, 
increasingly been a bigger bigger and bigger part of my life um i um obviously want to keep that connection with filmmaking alive now i'm at the point in my life where i think um i've got a kind of healthy balance um obviously i, I still have the parliament role um but i run my own business as well i do half and half um but what um my longer term plan is i'd love to obviously have that be the full-time focus um and where i'm well i just moved into a new office before the coronavirus situation mm-hmm. hit um and obviously we're in the position of i was about to take on two members of staff that's obviously been put on hold mm-hmm. um but there's yeah it's, it's been immensely rewarding setting up a business and seeing it grow and you know having a a a, a a lot of loyal clients who come back repeatedly and you know they're happy with the work and getting the feedback it is really rewarding stuff how are you surviving in this pandemic good question um well one of the things i've been doing is trying to maintain as much as possible a nine-to-five schedule mm. so um you know obviously i do my work for parliament or for midget media on a nine-to-five basis um and then um, in the evenings, I connect with my friends socially on um, Zoom, play a lot of video games, do a lot of reading. I'm here with my family at the minute. We're, we're the three of us, mum and dad and me are in the house. So um, that's quite good, um, staying with them. Um, I think that having that, that kind of family dynamic is very, very um, helpful at the present time. Um, obviously, I've lived by myself at other times, um, and now I've had that independence. But during a during a pandemic like this, I think this is a really good thing to be around your family and the people that you can have those connections with. And I recognise a lot of people don't have that luxury or opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing a lot of jogging, um, a lot of running. Um, yeah. I've been training myself for that. So having that focus and that goal, that's been great. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, working on projects to keep myself busy. Yeah, yeah. Um, such as podcasting. Uh, yeah, so, uh, that's a new thing. Yeah, a new thing for me. Yeah. So let's talk about your podcast. Uh, you set up, let's see, the Creative Film Five Network podcast. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. The Creative Film Five Network is a it's part of Midgetbyte Media that I launched last year, um, which was intended to be a networking group for people, um, basically filmmakers within Fife and trying to kind of showcase the talent that we have here because Fife is kind of overlooked um, compared to say Edinburgh and Glasgow and so on. There's there's a wealth of filmmaking, creative talent, amazing artists right here living by the coast. Um, but because I think we're so close to Edinburgh, we get completely overlooked. Mm. Um, and so um, I tried really hard to kind of put spot out on that, kind of bring people together. Um, so there's been a few events, um, not that many since it got set up last year because obviously I've been doing other things with my business and so on. But um, the um, the plan was um, during the pandemic, how do we manage to connect with people um, and try and put the spotlight, um, even though everyone's indoors? And so um, I was asked by um, uh, a woman called Lisa May Young, she's a broadcaster in Fife. She runs her own radio show. She invited me on on the back of the film that I made last year, the Mental Health Project I mentioned. She invited me on to her podcast in... Um, December mm-hmm. and I was really kind of taken away by that and how fun it was and how much I enjoyed taking part in it so I did an interview there um, talking about my wife and film and all the rest of it and so having done that um, I thought wouldn't it be good to kind of replicate that with filmmakers in Fife and put the spotlight on them mm. that could be something the creative network can do during the pandemic um, so um, obviously I plan on keeping it going beyond that mm. but we're effectively just trying to kind of get um conversations go and inspire people 
Um, our first guest is Sam Ashurst, who is he's a remarkable man, I have to say. Um, and I only got to know him a few months ago when he moved from London to Fife to pursue his filmmaking career because the opportunities here were so good, which mm. is it's quite something. People moving out of London to <laughs> a small rural coastal place because yeah. there's so many good filmmaking opportunities. That's remarkable. Um, and um, he's a, a journalist and um, filmmaker. And he has interviewed people like Quentin Tarantino, David Lynch, all the rest of it. Mm. Has also made a couple of feature films. And now um, I get to see him and have coffees with him regularly, which is which is very pleasant. Um, he's, a, he's a very fascinating guy. And I was delighted to have him on as the first guest of the podcast. If anybody listening to this uh, is interested in getting into your career as a filmmaker, what kind of advice would you have for them? I think... One of the biggest problems that people have when they're trying to get involved in filmmaking or any kind of creative work is they're waiting for opportunities. Um, but you don't need permission from anybody. If you want to go out and make a film, if you want to create um, something, then all you need to do is understand that it's collaboration. And mm. so if you don't have a camera, get online, socialize, find someone who's got a camera. There are people out there in your community. Someone's going to have a camera. Okay, you've got the camera. Right. Someone's going to have the editing software. Okay. Someone would want to be on camera as the actor. Okay. So you you start pulling together your resources. And I think when you realize that it's a community thing and it's more of a kind of a collaborative process. Um, but if you have that vision that can kind of bring it together, mm-hmm. there is no reason why you can't create an opportunity for yourself, make something. And the best way to get spotted if you want to go into film or television is to have a body of work that you've done yourself. Um I understand some people obviously are you know maybe don't have that much money or you know maybe they don't have that much time but um if you if you really want it then you know it is really just about kind of pulling together the resources kind of finding a time where you can to make it happen make it work understanding it's not an overnight thing it's going to take a lot of patience um and a lot of practice but if you can start that process um every step forward is a step on the right way um and there's a really supportive community out there online and probably within your own kind of local area as well that will kind of be the whole time pushing you forward encouraging you and motivating you and there to help with any issues you've got so um just give it a bash don't hold yourself back don't wait for opportunities to come just mm-hmm. think what do i want to do and do everything in your power to to make it happen Now, uh, dare I bring up the subject matter of Brexit? Hi, <laughs> Brexit. Yeah, yeah. But with uh, now that Brexit's actually a thing, um, yeah, I I have I haven't read anything uh, from the perspective of Scotland. Uh, for now, Scotland's still part of the mm. union, so yeah, they're yeah. included in the Brexit. I guess, in spite of the fact yeah. that they voted against Brexit. This is this has been kind of the main kind of um, talking point of Scottish politics for the last um, four years, I would say. Mm-hmm. So ever since the Brexit referendum happened, there was immediate demands for another independence referendum because um, it was in the SNP's 2016 election manifesto, because there was a Scottish election in 2016 before the Brexit election. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the Scottish election um, was one with a manifesto which said, if there was a material change of circumstances, such as it, the word naturally says, such as um, you know Scotland leaving the EU against its voting will, then, oh um, then then there's justification for another referendum. But of course, constitutionally, the legal power to grant a referendum lies with the UK government. 
so oh. that's that's where the issue comes from and so all the arguments since then have stemmed from can Scotland have another independence referendum is there enough support to win one you know all the rest of it but then I think also this is something I'm very conscious of um just because um people in Scotland voted to stay in the EU doesn't automatically mean that um they they would support um independence if it became an I so um I think it's it's a lot messier than just being a kind of simplistic kind of like you know oh well all the SNP voters suddenly decided to vote to remain in the EU because they didn't. Um, there was a there was a considerable number of SNP supporters who didn't vote to stay in the EU, and that's a bit of a problem for the party because you're trying to tie two issues together. One is about Scottish independence and whether or not decision making should lie in Scotland or with the UK Parliament, mm. and then the other um, issue is about membership of the European Union. So it's not inconceivable that someone would want an independent Scotland, but that independent Scotland would be outside of the European Union, mm. you know, mm. or, you know, so, so, or it's not inconceivable that someone would be against Scottish independence, but does support the UK being part of the European Union. So these are kind of separate issues. And I think it, it gets complicated because we try and tie them together and make them quite simplistic. Um, and so it's kind of been a mess for the last four years. Um, there's been a lot of talk about a second independence referendum. Um, it's never transpired, obviously. Mm. Um, and uh, at present, um, we're kind of in limbo. I mean, obviously, the coronavirus has caused all kind of political campaigning to effectively be suspended anyway. Mm. Um, my personal gut feeling is that I don't know if... I think possibly the momentum has waned by now. I think if you were going to try and capitalise upon the anger over Brexit, you would have had to move really quickly. Mm. Um, I think several years down the line, possibly, um, <laughs> maybe a lot of the momentum and the energy has kind of dissipated. And I think people are kind of now sick of politics. I mean, I'm sick of politics and I work in the damn thing. So, you know, because I mean, <laughs> you come home at night, right? You turn on the television and it's just, you know, like... Mm. Boris Johnson was arguing about the European Union and it's like, okay, well, there's a surprise. Nicola Sturgeon said she wasn't happy about Boris Johnson's statements. Okay, well, there's a surprise. And it's the same news headlines every night. And I think people are just totally, they're totally fed up with it, to be honest. Yeah. I think we did. So, I mean, I ain't chuffed because I obviously voted to remain in the in the European Union, but I, I accept that, you know, the situation is what it is. Um, I, I think we're dealing with two different issues which are obviously related because I understand how they're related, right? Because if you mm. argue Scotland has no control over its over its destiny, over its future, over its like over its over its um fundamental constitutional politics, right? Mm. Then the Brexit vote basically demonstrates that mm. quite clearly. You know, mm. extremely clearly. Um so I get that. But I do think it's disingenuous to tie the two together and make them one and the same, which I fear is kind of the the approach that people have been taking for a while. And I think I think it's a tactical mistake. I think if I think a, a second and best referendum is valid in this context, but I don't think it should be taken as read that people would automatically, yeah, uh, you know, vote a certain way. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, you filmed interviews with high-profile figures, uh, yeah. some of the biggest uh, names yeah. in UK politics, like Nigel Farage, Jeremy Corbyn, mm -hmm. Gordon Brown. Yeah. So on a scale of 1 to 10 and 20 being acceptable, how much did you want to throw a pie at some of your guests? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it, it fluctuates because um, there's been times I've filmed people who 
um, I completely disagree with the politics and I would say 10. Um, and there's people <laughs> who um, at the time I absolutely adored and were just like, oh, these people are my heroes. And um, that would be an absolute one because I would want to bake them a pie. I wouldn't want to throw a pie at them. Um, <laughs> so that, that's fluctuated quite a bit. But I think this is about professionalism. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're working in the media industry, you're going to meet people and interview people and film people who you don't uh, necessarily disagree, no, don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, but you're you have to be mature and recognize that you're there. If if you're there to record something, be professional, um, do your job, and what and if you do your job appropriately, then the public can make their own informed decisions about the um, the policies that they would like to um, vote for. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think it's the job of journalists to to manipulate or control public opinion. Um, yeah, no. there's, there's there's a there's a huge difference between um uh um journalism and propaganda a massive distinction in my mind but having said that when i was working at stv um i was mostly doing kind of fluff pieces mostly kind of entertainment pieces for the local channels um stv edinburgh and stv glasgow um and when i was doing the sky news content um i didn't ask the questions there was journalists asking the questions i was just setting up and recording stuff but certainly i was talking to the politicians and so on um and uh you know um I remember it was interesting when I was filming Nicola Sturgeon, who's the First Minister of Scotland, because mm-hmm. at that point I'd already secured the job with David Torrance, who obviously works in her members, uh, her, one of her blocks, well, her, is part of her, her MSP block in the Scottish Parliament. Mm-hmm. And so after we filmed the interview, um, I was speaking to her and I said, so by the way, I'm coming to work for you and your team. <laughs> Which was kind of, <laughs> I was just like, oh, really? Oh, okay. So that was that was quite interesting. And then obviously, um, I... I, I, I I do think it's quite interesting being on the other side of that because on one hand you're you're working as a journalist you're kind of filming politicians and then you kind of suddenly find yourself working in the political sphere where you you know you're kind of doing their press releases and you're kind of sticking up for them and then journalists are asking you questions and that's an interesting kind of switch okay well let's uh talk about the political side of things then uh so was it a matter of finding a local mp or or uh a contact was it on, on a volunteer basis or did you apply for a paid position i mean no i was when i came back from japan i was a full-time volunteer for the yes campaign and also i should say obviously i say this purely in respect to myself i have no in no way want to influence or, or would ever attempt to influence anybody's um, political opinions on scottish constitutional politics <laughs> certainly not not, not my <laughs> but role no enough. that there's only no. one right answer you decide which yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so, so obviously, I, I got heavily involved in the Scottish independence movement, um, and so I actually got involved when I was living in Japan, and and part of that was because I was looking at Scotland through the outside in. When I went to Japan, I was very much a diehard unionist. I believed very much in the idea of um, British unionism and the idea of kind of not God save the Queen because I was never a monarchist, but very much the idea of kind of like um, this sense of solidarity across. Um, all the peoples of of Great Britain and and Northern Ireland, and it was very much this sort of sense of shared history, shared community, shared identity. Um, I think this is going to sound not particularly good reflection on some of my colleagues, but I think I realised very quickly that as a Scot, I was not considered to be a normal Brit. I had most of my life had obviously, well, I've always lived in Scotland, but obviously I've got family in England and so on. Um, and my experiences to England were always very pleasant. But I think when I realised when I was in Japan that my English colleagues didn't see me the same way as I saw them. Um, I saw them as kind of fellow countrymen and they saw me as almost like a novelty. Like, a, <laughs> like, like you know, you were, you, were, you were the Scot, you know. Um, yeah. And 
you you know they, you got made fun of for your accent people would make fun of haggis and bagpipes and all the stereotypes and for a while that was fine but then after a while you start to kind of realize like maybe scotland isn't as integrated into the uk as as i maybe thought it was maybe we are kind of you know maybe kind of like a kind of like a like a little boat on a little add on you know um and Four so cousin sort of thing yeah that was, that was very much it yeah and so i did feel kind of quite dejected and as i say these people were still my friends um just because um obviously you know they would like to kind of poke fun at my accent or whatever like that mm-hmm. um it doesn't mean that i wasn't friends with these people or didn't respect them or didn't didn't like them but it did mean that i did start to see scotland in a different context i think also realizing that the word igirisu was interchangeable with england and the uk mm. this was at the same time as the scottish independence movement had kind of started kicking off and so um i was uh looking at scotland from the outside in mm-hmm. and you know realizing that people in japan a lot of my colleagues from across the world knew nothing about scotland they knew everything about um england they knew everything about the uk but they knew nothing about scotland Mm. And I started obviously to obviously reading a lot more Scottish history and following a lot of the debates from abroad. Funny watching debates from politicians who I'd later gone to work with when I went back on that because I was sitting in a in my room in Japan um, watching Parliament Chamber, the Scottish Parliament Chamber, and then here I am all these years later, and you know I've been walking around the corridors of Parliament talking to these guys. It's very strange. <laughs> um, but then I joined I joined the Scottish National Party in in 2012 um, mm. while I was living in Japan. Um, and became known as the Japan guy because obviously I was I wasn't able to take part, but I was yeah. say you know living there. And then after that, I kind of became determined. Okay, when push comes to shove, when the referendum does come in 2014, I will I will move home for that. And it was kind of the sense of a real sense of kind of political awakening. I mm. think I really annoyed people. My, my Facebook became overrun with political posts um, as as people who are passionate about political campaigns often often do. Mm-hmm. Um, became a keyboard warrior for a long time um and in recent years i've definitely milled on that i don't do that anymore because <laughs> i don't think people really go on facebook to get lectured i think it's not helpful mm-hmm. um but yeah so i got heavily involved in in the political world and then when i came back to scotland um the campaign was everywhere um it was like a i think it was referred to as like almost like a political carnival i mean basically every street corner there were people campaigning and it was the biggest um, political campaign in Scotland's history and I think possibly the biggest political campaign in, in well one of the biggest political campaigns in, in Europe I think mm. um, and you know it was it was wonderful because there were so many people who were um, they were all kind of like-minded and there was a sense of community a sense of camaraderie um, it was really welcoming and, and great to be back in Scotland and, and part of that that it gave me kind of a purpose even though at the time I'd come back and I was unemployed mm. it gave me a real sense of purpose and, and, and a sense of you know camaraderie but yeah. then also, I would say, getting involved. Um, obviously, the the MSPs, MPs, etc., were all very accessible. A local campaign hub opened in my hometown. I signed up and got involved there. Um, and then before I knew, it, I was out chapping doors. I was also, um, you know, working at the at the shop. I was I was doing everything. Mm. Um, and then that was just a huge part of my life um, for for that period of time. Um, and that was how I got involved. The other thing I would say as well is the fact that um, in recent years, my political kind of activism has melted. There was a time that it kind of dominated every part of my life mm-hmm. to the point it was actually detrimental in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, um, I think it was 2017 when I realised the scale of what was what I was doing to myself because I remember talking to my girlfriend at the time. Um, I was going to go for um, candidate vetting um, to basically get aligned up as a candidate for the election that year. Mm-hmm. Um and um, I remember talking to my girlfriend at the time 
and she said to me and this always stuck with me um if you do this this will be your life and you know you will you will have to give up on your other dreams and you know you're going to have the, the, the media scrutinizing every aspect of your life and all your friends all your family all your activities and i thought is that something i want and i concluded that it wasn't because there are so many other things that are important to me yeah um you know you'd be up till crazy am in the morning working on campaign stuff i mean campaigns are always intense but it comes to a point whereby actually it damages your your um your mental health i had a lot of issues with anxiety for a while as a result of that as a result of pushing myself too hard um i think i kind of spiraled for a bit without realizing it um became obsessed i think that's a real danger for all political activists it can become obsessive to the point of actually damaging your life damaging your friendships and your relationships with your family people who disagree with you and you can't you can't even maintain a degree of civility with them because it just always flares up um and that obsessiveness isn't healthy and so it took a it took a while but um these days i, I try and maintain a much healthier balance whereby i think having my own um, passion for video film filmmaking it gives me that kind of perspective and mm. realizing that those are things that I actually value a lot um the, the time i spend with my friends and family is probably more important than the time i spend doing any kind of political campaign and, and then also there's the fact that when I, um, well, over that time, I made a concerted effort to reach out to and, and speak to people in other political parties. So um, I've spent a lot of time talking to, reading and, and learning about um, people who didn't agree with me. Now I've found a lot of friendships, people mm. in different political parties. I found a lot of people who, you know, maybe there's areas where I still disagree with them, but I found a lot of common ground. And I now something I care a lot about is trying to break down that tribalism in politics and trying really hard to um, to reach across party lines to try and understand where people are coming from, even when we don't agree to kind of recognise common humanity. Because I do think that we we often demonise our opponents rather than try and understand them. And I think that that is it, it's not a it's not a healthy way for society to function. And I don't think it's good for for our own mental well-being to to demonize people that way. Yeah, well said. It's it's a really difficult thing to do to try and reach out to the other side and actually entertain mm-hmm. different points of view. I certainly, yeah. especially in this day and age when you're on social media, you know, you're you're basically friends with people who share the same kind of idealisms and beliefs. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like preaching to the choir, being an echo chamber. Yeah. Chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know I certainly don't make very much of an effort to seek out different viewpoints because i i i think i i think i'd have a heart attack my blood pressure probably can't really take it uh yeah i think it's very mature of you actually i don't know how you how you manage that i think with great difficulty um but i appreciate appreciate you saying so um but i think i would say it hasn't been easy because Part of that process has also involved um, kind of speaking out more within my own party when there's issues that I I don't agree with, and mm. that at times obviously you know I still I still work for the party I'm still integrated into it, but um, you know at times that obviously has caused some issues because you know I've tried very hard to make us kind of face up to our own feelings. So for example, if something's wrong with the trains, say for example, or the schools, then I want us to be quite well internally anyway. I want us to be quite open and say. So we got that wrong, didn't we? Mm. And then I often find my colleagues have this approach of, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, because they've taken the spin or the government line that has been issued and they just recite it back verbatim. And Mm. then I kind of have this thing where I'm like, but guys, we have to be honest. Like, if we screwed something up, we we have to confess that we screwed up. Sure, Mm. you've got to spin it to the public and try and maintain confidence, but 
at least internally you have to have those discussions and and recognize where your feelings are because otherwise it just becomes this 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 kind of horrible cycle whereby we can do no wrong and our opponents are you know we're always right our opponents are always wrong they never have any valid points and um I think that that's not healthy um, for for any party to kind of fall into the trap of of not taking accountability for its own failings is is really bad, um, and this is mm-hmm. ironic because as I say, if I go back three years ago, I used to have this opinion of toe the line, toe the line, always toe the line, whereas mm-hmm. now my approach is very much a kind of a, okay, listen to what the opposition are saying, do they have valid points, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that's very important. That's not to say I'm going to say just roll over and take every single criticism that's made of you mm. but i do think that we have to have that at least try and maintain that level of objectivity and, and honesty with ourselves because if we don't then how can we expect that level of integrity from the people who we you know we, we want to have a level of integrity you know both for ourselves and for our opponents and how can we expect others to have that level of integrity if we don't demonstrate it ourselves yeah but that doesn't sell papers does it it doesn't make for good it doesn't, television. It doesn't sell papers <laughs> no it doesn't yeah. But then here's the thing. I mean, I think I think this is a this is a, a byproduct of our political age because you know if you go back twenty thirty years ago before Facebook and social media were mm-hmm. around, poor digital technology. I mean, everyone still had diverse political opinions. You had really really right wing conservatives and you had really really far left liberals. But in general society, people just kind of got along because you know you didn't know what your colleagues were thinking about this stuff and people didn't talk about it. And on the one hand, I think it's good that we do talk about our political opinions and we we kind of express our opinions. But on the other hand, I think that we we act in such bad faith because I think that we see our opponents and we we immediately come at them from a perspective of they think the opposite of me, therefore they must be immoral. And I think that we we ascribe moral positions to to political ideologies, and I think that can yes. be quite dangerous because yeah. um, you know, for example, I think. One of the things I, I used to really struggle with was when, when I was very, very far left winning um, <laughs> um, kind of socialist. I, I, I wouldn't describe myself that way more. I'm very much now seeing myself as a moderate. But um, when I was back in the sort of very, very far left um, socialist days, I think I I really struggled with the idea of, like, how could a conservative ever think that? You know, how, I, what, it's so inhumane. Like, you're just putting all these people in the scrap heap. It's barbaric. Mm. And then actually speaking to these people and actually, you know, you actually can understand where they're coming from in terms of they think, okay, well, accountability, responsibility, people, you know, I, working in politics, and I've seen because I've been, I've, I've obviously worked with a lot of people who've come from impoverished and disadvantaged circumstances and trying to help people, and there are people who desperately need help, and the system is completely geared against them, and there's no denying that, but there are people who fail to take any responsibility and accountability, and that's. It's it's not it's not an either or. There's a mix, and I think yes. you, when you when you start to understand that, um, it's like okay, well maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Maybe this this is obviously kind of more and more personal politics, but like maybe the solution isn't far left radical Marxism or super right wing like neoliberal conservatism. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a balance to be struck, and maybe we need a a a, 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 a political dichotomy where we get a bit of this and a bit of that and then between that kind of balance and act we can kind of emerge a system that's fair and um and and the thing is if there were easy answers to all these questions then mm. we'd have sorted this out a long time ago um but they're not and mm. i think that we, we try and simplify things for sound bites because they sound good but the reality is um we're dealing with extremely complex debates to do with ethics, with to do with morals, and to do with values, and it's really hard to simplify those down to this person's good or this person's bad. Yeah, um, 
there are a lot of people in my own party who I deeply respect, and there's a lot of people in my own party who I think are opportunistic and I don't I don't respect. <laughs> but that's the same yeah. political parties, I imagine. And then there's people in other parties who I deeply respect, and there's people in other parties who I don't have any time for whatsoever. Um, and it, I, I think that if we can try and get away from this party division and start seeing people and and we can recognize okay i disagree with 90 percent of what you're saying but there's a 10 percent there which i can kind of get a bit of mm. then i think we can start building something a bit more productive and healthy big thanks to gavin hugh for being a guest it's refreshing and maybe just a little unnerving to hear a balanced bipartisan and mature opinion about the process of political discourse gavin is also an active member of jet aa scotland which means you can chat him up for career advice on linkedin and if you remember gavin mentioned helping out in a local film project called dick dynamite 1944 the trailer does indeed look dynamite. It's got Nazis and zombies. See the link in the footnotes. Also in the footnotes will be links to his showreel for Midgibyte Media and his podcast for the Creative Film 5 Network. Well worth a listen to if you love the process of filmmaking and behind the scenes stories. Well that's it! Thanks for listening and see you next time. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, email me at webmaster at jetaainternational.org. This podcast is generally supported by Claret, the Council of Local Authorities for International Relations. However, it is otherwise an independent work by me, Eden Law. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely private opinions of individuals and do not represent any organization that they work for. Music used for this episode is Clear Progress by Scott Holmes from the album Inspiring and Upbeat Music and is licensed under an attribution non-commercial license available on freemusicarchive.org.